to aid in the transformation of your people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. billion people are unreached. What does unreached mean? It means that they do not have access to what you have access to this morning. It means they cannot go to a local church and hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. It means that if they want to believe in Christ, they may first face persecution. 3.2 billion people. In the Christians around the world that declare themselves as Christians, only one-fourth are considered evangelical. And if you take the evangelical population of the world and divide to the world population, it's 8.6% are proclaimed evangelicals, which means that our missionaries matter. But I want to reconfigure your minds from missions being something that is there and then to here and now. For the mission field is upon us. We have people streaming across borders, which we read about, and your hearts can react in two ways, can't they? They can look at that and say, oh, how could the government not do this? Or you can say, what a wonderful opportunity that Christ This word can be proclaimed here to people, and we don't even have to go there. There's two ways to look at everything, isn't there? 3.2 billion people are unreached. What's the population of Santa Clarita? Quarter million? I wonder how many of them are unsaved. See, unreached and unsaved are two different words. Unreached means that they do not have the ability to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Unsaved means that they hear it and they reject it. Two resurrections. Every single person here and online will face death. Some of you perhaps feel it's more imminent than others, but you will all face it should the Lord tarry. And we will stand before Jesus Christ as judge. Some will face a resurrection to life and others will face a resurrection to damnation and judgment. Today, we honor those that have been sent out. We have in the family center and across the church, a commemoration of our five missionaries that are serving across the world. Praise the Lord for their efforts in India and Italy and United Arab Emirates in Brazil, and I'm missing one. Throw it out to me. Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, thank you. But every one of you are a missionary. Every single one of you are a missionary. You cannot say the word that your workplace is unreached because you are there. Did you get my point? That means you're responsible to share the good news of Jesus Christ, not the pastor and the elders of this church. We have an opportunity on March 16th to go to a thousand doors around our neighborhood. We've cast a a two-mile net thanks to the great work that Matt and others are doing and chip on the door hangers. And we want to invite people to come to this church. But it's not to fill these pews. 
It's for the glory of God. See, it's not about our budgets and our bottom line and our buildings. It's about Christ, Christ, Christ. And that's why we exist. So open your Bibles. Let's turn to learn more of this wonderful story, which is true. John chapter 5, looking to verse 24 for context. Truly, truly, God's word says, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, for those that are fairly astute, you'll notice that we've been reading that verse and memorizing that verse for a long time, but we had a new verse show up this morning, John 6, 35. And this new verse is going to talk about two themes, one being bread and two being water. But both of them have one point, which is life. The author and the creator and the sustainer of life is who we marvel at this morning. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Look to verse 25. Two resurrections, truly, truly, I say to you, remember last week what we learned about truly, truly? Truly, truly is a way to introduce a new topic that is truthful. And Jesus adds the words, I say to you, which implies authority. He's just made five claims of divinity. And here is where we're going today, last week, and next week. Five claims of divinity, two resurrections, four witnesses, straight to the cross. This is exactly what Jesus is orchestrating. You remember what happened. So remember, go back in our memories. He finds the man at the pool who doesn't know who he is and he heals him and then he tells him and then he seeks to find him where in the temple. And he says, this is me, I'm Jesus. This is who healed you. And the guy goes and tells on him. Is that coincidental? I think not. Do you think it surprised Jesus? I know not. And he goes to the religious leaders. The religious leaders do what? Confront Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He doubles down. Five claims of divinity. I am equal to the Father in person, in works, in omnipotence, in judgment, and in honor. And then if he's not created enough of a stir, he then says, oh, by the way, I'm your judge. You think he's going to make friends and influence people? This is not what Jesus is here for. He says to them, no, no, no. The reason that I can judge you is because I have followed the will of my father faithfully. And the father has given the son, the ability to judge. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. You could easily misunderstand this verse as eschatological. What do I mean by that? An hour is coming, future tense, and miss the point of what Jesus actually says. 
Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is. The point of what he has just said is there are two resurrections and the author of life and the one that will do the judgment is standing in front of you. The hour now is. It's not a physical hour. It's a time frame. It means from this moment forward until he comes, the now is, is a time unit. How long has the time unit been? 2,000 years. And it will continue until he comes. And what he is saying to them very clearly is the hour has come. It now is. There's an already, but there's also a not yet. You've heard that expression already, but not yet. This is it. This is the moment in scripture where Jesus says, it's already upon you, but there's something else to look forward to. So yes, in one sense, there is an eschatological meaning end of times, meaning future coming. But what he is saying is, I'm here. And this is the second nail in the coffin. For they now realize that you not only have called yourself equal to God, but now you're telling us that you are standing in front of us and you are going to be the judge, not making friends. We left on a mountaintop, did we not? In verse 24 last week, we were dwelling I heard people come to me afterwards and say, oh, I have a better appreciation of the claims of the divinity of Christ. Praise the Lord. There's no way to mistake verses 18 to 24 as anything but truth claims of divine equality with God. And in verse 25, Jesus comes and says, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So how is the already, but not yet? That's the tension that we're facing in this chapter, in this verse. So in one sense, he can say to a thief on a cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But in another sense, we have a not yet. So each of us will die, but there will be a second coming. And what is the difference between the two? See, the Bible is exceedingly clear for those who believe in the Son of God will have eternal life, but it almost always speaks about it in the present or past tense, meaning you already have it. It's not something you will earn. It's not anything your works will do. It's not something that you will achieve only when he comes back. It's a present tense reality. And yet there's something that's coming. What's the difference? That's what we'll look to answer. So let's go through it. Jesus' statement that the Son also give life is another claim to his deity. Whoever hears the word of God, the Father, and believes in the Son will have eternal life. These people, which I pray are all of us, likely not all of us, there's a mistake that pastors will make which is they think that everybody that's sitting in the pews is the ones that are going to be going through the straight and narrow gate. Few will enter. Many will say, did I not call you Lord, Lord? And he'll say, depart, for I knew you not. 
Jesus makes five claims of divine equality. So how can he raise the dead to life? The Old Testament makes it clear that raising the dead and giving life is the sole prerogative of God. Deuteronomy 32, 39. 1 Samuel, it's in your notes, 2, 6. 2 Kings 5, 7. But here is Jesus now applying truth claims of the Old Testament to him. And they got it. This life is both the new life given to believers. So any one of you, if I look at and say, if you're truly a Christian, that means it's already accomplished. But there's a not yet. John 5, 24, John 11, 25, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, all affirm one thing, that life is given now to believers. And yet, the resurrection of the body of Christ, of, or the resurrection of our body at the coming of Christ, is affirmed in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, Daniel 12, 2. There's an already, but there's a not yet. So what that means is if you're a believer and you die, you're not in limbo for the rest of your life and purgatory or you're going to be reincarnated as something worse if you had a bad life, which many people believe in the unreached people groups. That if you did good things, then you will come back as better wrong. You live once. You don't get two kicks at the can. You hear the truth, believe the truth, live out the truth. An hour is coming and now is. Hearing and living. This will be the longest point, just to encourage you. And then we'll get shorter, and then we're going to get really short, and we're going to get to the finish, and you're going to say, why did he have a third point? Because the third point connects to next week. Okay? So that's the purpose. The hour is coming, and now is. Hearing and living, verses 25 to 29. The New Testament era began when the Lord began his ministry. You notice the New Testament doesn't start in the time between the times? This is a good place to nod your head, right? So the reality is we have the Old Testament. We have where God stops speaking through the prophets. And then we have this period of silence. And now God speaks. But it isn't through the mouths of prophets. It's through the Lord Jesus himself. It will not be completed. The ministry of the Lord begun when he arrived, the ministry of redemption, the ministry of salvation, the ministry of sanctification. But it will not end until the work of redemption is finally complete. This is just our Lord's way of saying, redemption has begun, regeneration has begun, and those that are born again are already spiritually resurrected. So here's a question you might not have thought of before this morning. So were the disciples that were truly disciples, meaning believers of Christ, already saved? Don't answer. Think about it after lunch. Wrestle through this. So, or did they have to wait till Jesus was already dead on the cross and resurrected before they had new life? Great question. Wrestle it through theologically. Wrestle it through biblically. 
There's a future not yet. Resurrection. Our citizenship is in where? Heaven. From which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body from the lowly state or lowly condition in the conformity to his glorious body. That's the not yet. The dead will come to life through the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live, future tense, already but not yet. Are you tracking with me? Okay, good. Because this is critical that we do not misunderstand God's word. Heresy is born. False religions are just taking it and twisting it and misapplying it and misunderstanding. Think about the Catholic Church for so many years. How many decades? How many? You're in purgatory. Therefore, I have to release you from the pain and the punishment and from the copper rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Misapplication from God's word is tragic. Pastor MacArthur was referenced once. I'll reference him again. And I think it's a very important point he makes. He says, Christ comes to life to give life to the spiritually dead. The natural man is dead. And he goes on and he says, if you took a pin and you pricked the corpse, there's no reaction. And so were all of you in your spiritual estate before the Lord called you. Meaning you had no ability to respond, meaning you had no potential to respond if he did not first choose you. A corpse is not able to respond to anything for it is not living anymore. And an hour is coming, yes, and now is, when the dead, the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus is simply saying this, it has begun. The ministry of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ has begun. Even before the cross, even before he gave his life, even before his resurrection, He was already giving life to people. Have you thought of that? Isn't that a great and comforting thought that he is granting life? Not the physical, lifeless. Yeah, that's one thing. He can raise the dead, of course. For people walk, they talk, they eat, they marry, they have children and so on. But they're spiritually lifeless. Jesus, picture this, walks into this room And this is before he came. And every one of us are dead. That's the image I want you to have. He's the only living being walking into every single situation. That's the image that should be in our minds. Spiritually, dead. Jesus is alive. The hour has come. And whom he grants life to will come to. It's effective. It's effectual. Meaning they will come. Aren't we thankful for God choosing us? You're dead. And I'm dead because we're born in death, spiritual death. We've inherited it. Do I know it's true? Psalm 51, verse 5. But every one of us, every single one of us have also sinned. If you think you haven't, come and talk to me after. I'd love to have that conversation with you biblically. Now, seriously. 
You've all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short. Chris mentioned it in his prayer. Just as sin came in through one man, or sorry, just as through one man sin entered the world, death and through sin, so death separated and spread to all mankind. Because what? All sinned. Does your sin grieve you more than other people's sins? Does it? Or are we more concerned of how others sin against us? We've all sinned. Our most egregious sins are against God, for every sin is an offense to God. So how we deal with sin is we mortify sin by first going to God in repentance and then going to the other. But even if I went to you all day long with all my sins, without Christ, I cannot account for them. And the hour now is. The Son of God has come. Jesus comes to give life to spiritually dead people. God alone is the one that gives life. Consider in John, I just want you to hear rapid fire where we've been, where we're going. Listen, listen carefully to how many times life is mentioned in the book of John. John 1, 4, in him was life. John 3, verse 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You go to verse 36, we read earlier that he who believes in the son has eternal life. Chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks the water that I give to him shall never thirst, but the water that I give to him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. Go down to 539. You search the scriptures because in them that you think you have eternal life. It is, they testify about me, but you're unwilling to come to me so that you do not have life. Chapter six, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. The son of man will give to you. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes me will never thirst. Go to the end of the ver- uh, the end of there in chapter in verse thirty eight. Essentially the same thing. The Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then, in, as if it isn't enough, we we'll go to ten ten. Just look at your Bibles. Flip over to ten ten with me for a second. So if you think we haven't got the point, John ten. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Get it? It's all about life. The hour has come. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. First scene we've seen in creation was the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You have this hovering over the waters and the Son affirms in John 1.1 1, 1 that he was with God in the beginning and was involved in the creation. Trinity was there at the beginning. And now the second person, the Trinity, in the incarnate form is standing in front of the Jewish leaders and he says, the hour has now come. Verse 26, for just as the father in chapter five, our sermon text, just as the father has life in himself, right? 
Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Does Jesus just like talking about life? Yeah, he does. Because that's what he came to grant. See, Lazarus back from the dead, centurion's son, daughter, you go down the list. There's nothing to do with physical life. All of these things were done so that you may believe. John 20, verse 31, train hits the finish line at the cross, but it tells why the track was set in 2031 as a purpose statement. See, John is a a one man focused on one idea, which is all about Christ from beginning to end. D.A. Carson adds, look to verse 26 one more time. Do you notice the word for? Last week we did, a, we did a hermeneutic study, right, here in church. And for those that were here, we talked about the word grounding. And what grounding means is it's the therefores, the fors, the because, the since, the so that's. And what they do is they form the reasoning for what either comes before or what comes after. If, it, if it's what comes after, it's actually called inference, but we won't go there. My point is this. My point is simply this. When you see four, ask what it's there for. For, just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son to also have life in himself. Carson adds, the grounding for in verse 26 is important because it explains how the son can exercise divine judgment and generate resurrection life by his powerful word. It is because, like God, he has life in himself. God is self-existent. He is always the living God. Continues in verse 27. And, which means it's connected to what was before it, and he gave him authority to execute judgment. And here's the causation, a second ground. Why? Because he is the son of man. 82 times in the New Testament, Son of man is used. Jesus' favorite self-designation is the son of man, capital M. And here, what you can see very simply is this. The identity. Now, some of you have heard the term fully God and fully man. Have you heard that ever before? I want you to stop using that. I want you to use the word truly God and truly man. We can argue, we can Debate why afterwards. But there's a very important reason why I'm trying to zone this in so you understand. A major debate happened and there was some of the top theological minds. It isn't, here's why I say this to you. These are identifiers. He is truly God and he is truly man. It's not like there's a hole in his humanity that gets filled by his divinity. There are two distinct that form one identity. Do you understand why I'm focusing on this? Heresy can be misapplying, as I've said for many weeks, an elevation of one or the other. Truly God, truly man. When he came to take on flesh, he took it on as a permanency going forward to account for us and our sins on the cross in our place so that he can be both the just and the justifier. He becomes the means for our salvation because we couldn't do that on our own. 
because of his identity, truly God, truly man, who willingly, obediently followed the will of the Father because of Jesus' sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, then the Son has the power to grant physical life and to call all to eternal life by the power to execute just judgment. Do you notice I use the word all to eternal life? I think sometimes we can kind of speak as, you know, if you believe in God, then you have eternal life. Do you see the danger in that statement? All have eternal life. It's just a matter of where you spend it. It's not like because you don't believe, you just have a nice little, well, had a good life, and therefore the afterlife is non-existent. All will stand before Jesus Christ. All, as we will see to verse 28, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming. Well, hold on. Before, what did he say? Now is. But now he says an hour is coming. Here's the already but not yet. In which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life. In verse 29. And those who committed evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. Both are resurrected. Now, we often use the term eternal life, meaning that's the good place. That's heaven. So I understand that meaning. But all will be resurrected. Precision matters when we handle God's word. If we tell people only the good news and we don't tell them the bad news, then they don't understand the good news. The good news is only good in light of the darkness and the bad news, for it becomes great news, doesn't it? What does verse 29 mean? Look to your Bibles. They will come forth, those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. Again, this is the longest point. Here's the final verse in this first point. What this does not mean, friends, please hear me. This means you do not contribute, they did not contribute to their salvation. You could easily misunderstand this verse in isolation and think, oh, if I do good works, then I get resurrection, input, output. Wrong. So the question that we need to wrestle with in this text is, what are the good works? What is the good work that's being referenced in verse 29? Hold that thought for a second. Now, we're pretty clear that those who do evil will have judgment. But again, by nature, we're evil. So what, is the, what does this mean? Let's look to context of good works. If you scroll back or look back, depending if it's electronic or You've got your Bibles. Look to John 3, verse 21. John 3, verse 21. So God's word says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, which means made known, as having been wrought in God. Now I'm going to get you to flip forward. John 6, 29. So what is the work? Here's the answer. God's word answers. Don't you love how the dots connect as Dwayne says often in scripture for living. 
Here's the dot, and this is the big dot. What is the work that is being talked to in verse 29 of our text? John 6, 29 affirms. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So do you have a work? Yes, you do, which is believe in the son of God. But your works in no way contribute to your salvation. Do you see the tension there? So you would not have chosen him if he didn't choose you. But because he has chosen you, you will come to faith. And the work that you do, so to speak, quote unquote work, is a singular work, which is belief in the son of God. Hence, verse 29 in chapter 5, when you look at it, if anybody ever asks you, well, what in the world does that mean? What are the works that lead to eternal life? It's belief in the Son of God. That is the singular work. Do not marvel at this. Good works. Evil done here in verse 29 and in our life is a rejection of the Son. The unsaved, they hate the light, which is a result of their evil deeds. You know, Christmas evening was really special to me because we had this whole room dark and then we had candles and it got lighter and lighter. And maybe I was more excited about it than you were. I could barely see right up here. But what we were symbolically doing is saying that the light of the world has come into the world. He has broke through the darkness. And once the light comes, the darkness and the light never dwell together. Let me give you a practical application. We had a Bible study yesterday morning. We had a discussion with some of the men down in the modular one or whatever we call that building. And in there, there was a robust discussion around, well, wait a second, can we be in bondage to sin? Really simple. No. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the old has passed, the new has come. You are no longer a child of darkness. You are a child of light, which means turn from your old self, turn to your new identity and live it out. Is that clear? So if you hear someone say, oh, I can't because of I'm in bondage, gently, lovingly take scripture to correct them. That's not who we are. That's your old identity. No, no, no. You're no longer in chains. You're no longer enslaved. You are a new creation. Live out your new identity in Christ. And how do we have that ability? Through his word and the spirit that indwells us. Once we're saved, we're to live it out. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed, the new things have come. Now, most of you know in this room and online that we're from Canada. Now, citizenship is a big deal. Let me just tell you. We're in the midst of a citizenship process. And I use the word process, which takes three years. One year for Don, one year for Olivia, and then one year for me, Lord willing. And it costs a lot of money, and it takes a lot of steps. We have to get medical stuff this, and doc this, and passport photos this, and our son sponsors us to that, and it's really boring. And there was a call that we both had a couple days ago with our immigration folks in Canada, and it takes a lot of time. And at any point, they could tell us, no, but... Lord willing, they won't. 
It takes money. It takes time. It takes effort. That is not how our citizenship is in the Bible. We don't go partially into the kingdom and get new stamps on passports that happen progressively. We don't have to wait six months and wait for Homeland Securities to say, yeah, okay, now you're a Christian. No, it's instant. It's instant. Once you're saved, you're saved. Live it out. You have a spiritual identity that's connected to an eternal passport. Isn't that a beautiful thought? You all have passports. Well, most of you have passports. Some don't travel out of America, so maybe you don't. (laughs) All Canadians seem to have passports. We just love America. So let's assume you have a passport. Let's go there. It's stamped by who? The government. And it seals on the front and your picture's inside. And you cross the borders of the world in some countries, you need to have visas. That is not how it is with God. He puts Christ picture in your place. So when he sees you, he sees that accomplished work. Your picture is below it. It's covered by it, which means it's forever Change. It's not like it comes off if you have to renew it. It's not like after a time that then they can see a little blending of the old and the new. No, 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 no. It is covered and it is permanent and it is forever. Everybody will answer to the Son of God. The question is which passport you're bringing. Some of you will bring your old ones. Some of you actually think you're carrying passports that are Heavenly, my job is to be clear. Opposition and rejection of the Son is opposition to the Father. Point two, God's judgment is just. This will be shorter than point one, but it won't be less powerful, I pray. The eternally begotten son, Jesus, willingly, obediently follows the will of the father. And as a result, the father has given all judgment to the son. Make no mistakes. All will face judgment. If you know people that think they won't go to judgment, tell them the truth. That's how you love them. Our daughter's going to leave now because of that point. No, uh, but in all seriousness... Tell them the truth. You don't love people. I think of somebody that is in this audience right now, in this congregation right now, that loved people well enough to call me over to their house recently to tell of dying person of what eternity looks like. And we did it not once, not twice. We continue to do it. And guess what? They died. And I pray they listened pray they heard. I pray they applied. But God knows your heart. God knows your choices that you make. I don't know. I can't tell. He knows. Every one of you. You will face judgment. The reason for global and local missions 
friends, is not for travel purposes. It's not like we want more stamps on passports. It's not that our missionaries like to go around the world for better food. The reason that we get behind global missions is because we have a story to tell, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. To turn people from a general revelation, which means in English that they have an awareness that God exists when they see the moon and they see the stars and they they know that there must be more than this. To a special revelation which says, hey, here is who did it. Here's who the author of this is. And here's the judgment you're going to face. That is loving our neighbor as ourselves. The reason that we do missions is because we love Christ whether that's here or there. Many false religions are teaching the lost and the dying that the road to the promised land is a multiplicity road. Many paths connect to the promised land or Mecca or whatever you want to insert it is. That's lies, it's heresy. So, how do we love our neighbors ourselves? Seriously, we tell them. We bring them, we encourage them, we walk alongside them, we love them, we invite them into our homes, we use the bake sale, we use the Easter opportunity, we use the Christmas opportunity, and we keep pursuing our neighbors to get them in to hear about Christ. Whether they attend our church long-term or not isn't the point. We care enough about our families that aren't here to maybe share sermons, to maybe share pieces of this, to maybe share content of this, and encourage them. And again, it's not about us. If there's other ones out there that are sharing it better, share that. But do it because we love them. There are two resurrections, but there's only one gate. There's two resurrections, there's only one gate. Small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few will find it. Strive to enter in the straight gate, Luke 13, 24. For many, I say unto you, will seek and enter it and shall not be able. Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled The Straight Gate, said this. He himself, meaning Christ, is the only gate the, or the door by which you can find admission. And the way to enter in is through Jesus Christ is not by working for it, but by believing in it. Then, as to the strife to urge to carry on in an earnest endeavor to steer clear of all the rocks, the shoals, the quicksands of popular fallacies and deceitful traditions, and to sail into the deep waters with his covenant for our chart and his word for our compass. Many shall seek to enter in and shall not be able. What's behind me? cross he that will find the gate of heaven finds the cross and the man that hanged thereupon. happy is he who can come upon it and pass through it and atonement made for them the cross is a mark of the citizenship of the skies wow he had no notes Do you know what he had, though? Love for Christ. 
and a clear awareness theologically of what Christ accomplished in his place and in yours. Having truly believed in Jesus, everlasting joy is beyond all doubt. Who then would not pass through the straight gate? And who would not wish to pass through it when he considers what will be the lot? We just heard about lot today. What will be the lot of those outside of that straight gate? How we tremble at the thought of the outer darkness. Where shall we be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? There are many inquiries nowadays about internal punishment. O men and brethren, do not rashly, carelessly challenge the bitter experience of such condemnation. Speculate as you ought to about the doctrine. But I pray you do not trifle with the reality. For God's judgment stands over you. You do not stand in judgment over God. God's word stands in judgment over you. You do not stand in judgment over God's word. We will all face judgment, either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. Judgment is just, verse 30. As the son seeks the will of the father who sent him. Go back to verse 30 in chapter 5. Why? I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just. For I do not seek my will, but the will of him who sent me. Does this ever feel like a courtroom? Think about it. Five claims of equality. And now we have just and judgment. And then we're going to have four witnesses. Jesus is coordinating his death. And he's making sure that there's enough witnesses that he's attested to, enough claims that he's made, that there's no way for them to misunderstand what he's saying. And their only reaction is either one of two things, believe or kill him. That's what's going on here. Revelation 14, 7 describes the future judgment of the Lord to come. This is the not yet. Listen to God's word. Fear God. And give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Have you ever bought a, a greeting card where you see a little angel on it? And they look kind of cute. Maybe they're fat. Maybe pudgy little ones. And they're kind of smiling and cartoonish. Right? Have you ever had one of those? Mm-hmm. Throw them out. It's not what an angel looks like. How does the Bible speak about angels? Judges 13, 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came upon me, or to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible. But I asked him, not whence he was, nor neither did he tell me his name. How is God described in the Bible? Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people. For I have, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Revelation 1, 7, 17, excuse me. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Remember C.S. Lewis? Lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Have you seen the movies, right? So you read the books, but maybe you saw the movies. And perhaps you saw Aslan and thought, oh, he looks so cuddly. I'd like to give him a hug, right? He looks furry. 
and flowy in the main. Make no mistake, C.S. Lewis says this, Aslan is a lion. Aslan is the lion's name, representative of Jesus Christ. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, one of the characters. Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver, who was one of my favorite characters. And who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, make no mistake. We are not safe at all before God unless our passport is stamped by Christ. Those who believe are saved by faith. And those who do not are judged according to their works and separated forever. We may be quite sure that the judgment of the Son will exercise as perfectly just, just like everything else that he says and he does. And his judgment is completely dependent upon the word and the will of his Father. John 5, 19 to 20 is effectively a parallel to what we're seeing happen. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in a like manner. But now, suddenly it's being applied to his authority. It's elevated. The truth claims have all come in. The judgment has now been established. And the witnesses are waiting in the wings. It's the very submission of Jesus to his Father. His unqualified commitment not to please himself, but the one who sent him that guarantees all that he says and all he does, even to the last day. He's in complete accord to the will of the Father. Could Jesus have come down from the cross? All I have to do is ask, and the Father will send what? Legions of angels. What held Jesus to the cross had nothing to do with the nails. It had everything to do with the will of the Father. Perhaps you've often thought of it and said, well, it's the love he has for me. Mm. Yeah, he does love you, but he will follow the will of the Father. And the Father's will is for him to come on to take on flesh, for him to hang on the cross so that for the purpose, not of our exaltation, but our glorification of his son, we exist not for an inward focus, but an outward manifestation and praise to the son. And that's the purpose of humanity. Jesus' assertion that the Father has given all judgment is just. It's another claim of deity. If, if they weren't done with the first five, he gives another one. Judgment is the exclusive prerogative of God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. At the very knee of Jesus Christ, every knee in this room online will bow. Some of you will do it willingly, but all will do it eventually. Acts 17.31 in the Westminster Catechism Confession, chapter 33, says this. If you take the two, his testimony is true and all will bow their knee in submission to Jesus Christ, either with overjoyous hearts and thankfulness or with terror for the realization that all you lived for was meaningless in light of eternity. The third and the briefest point is the testimony 
The testimony could easily have been brought into next week's sermon text. And perhaps if I was smarter, I would have. But I think it sets the stage. I think 31 and 32 set a beautiful appetizer to the four witnesses that are coming. Look to God's word. If I alone testify about myself, Jesus says, my testimony is not true. But there's another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony which he gives, capital H, about me is true. See, Jesus is now, the court scene is set. He's come up, he's made declaration, he's made declaration, he's made declaration, and he's now told them that he is going to judge them. And now he's going to bring in his plurality of witnesses to conclude the matter. The testimony from the Father regarding the Son is the only the beginning of a longer portion. And Lord willing, we will continue that next weekend. Some of your Bibles may in fact separate out 30 to 47 as a separate unit. Let me give you three brief observations before we get into it next week. John 5, 32 to 47 will contain within the background, which is based on Deuteronomy 17, 6. So in advance of next week, if you want to prepare your hearts, read Deuteronomy 17, 6 and Deuteronomy 19, 15. It's in your notes, but read those in advance of next week. It will prepare your heart, I pray. Where witnesses are being used to establish the truthfulness of claims. So that's number one. And Jesus says what? In verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is hearkening back to the court system that has already been established by God, instituted by the people and saying, the witnesses that are coming are going to make this awfully clear. What I just said is not just my own words, but the very words of the Father, the very words of John the Baptist who has attested to, the very words that I'm going to proclaim and the very words of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus knows what he is saying, trust me. Point two under here is simply this, that Jesus is setting the stage for what is coming. So he is just and true. He does not speak in his own accord. The father sends him. He's commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know the command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just, whatever the father has told me. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father, him who sent me, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, Jesus says, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Perfect, willful obedience to the Father. And I will add the word, joyful. He didn't begrudgingly come to earth. It wasn't Plan B, this was eternally set. Remember what it says? Before the foundation of the world, I chose you. What does that mean? He can't choose you unless there's a plan for redemption for you. This is not something that happened because we fell short and God said, okay, now I've got to do something to redeem them. Mm -mm, not so. 
Testimony is like a court of law. Without validation by witnesses, it isn't accepted as truthfulness. And guess what? It's not accepted today as truthfulness. You can't come into a court, can you? My mom just got on a witness stand, uh, what, a week ago? If she's watching, she'll appreciate this. So there was a, something in her building, and she heard something in her building, and they brought her in to attest to this, and were other people in her building as well. And there was, uh, there was uh, uh, unfortunately, a murder that happened. And uh, there became character witnesses to validate either the defendant, right, or the prosecutor. And so they marshal up all the witnesses, and some stand here and some stand there, and the judge stands in judgment over the prevailing case, and, the, and he'll, or he or she will proclaim what they feel is just punishment. That gives you a small inkling of what this is like, but it is totally falling short. For God himself is going to use the Father, the words of God, the Son of God, the Old Testament, and John the Baptist are the witnesses that are being marshaled out before the people that are standing in opposition to him. And they will all have nothing to say one day. At the time, they think they are justified. They think they are right. But our Savior is standing in front of them. And he has said, look, five claims of divinity. I'm telling you what's happening in the two in the middle in terms of judgment, either to life or to judgment eternally. And then I'm going to give you four witnesses. What say you? That's the same question we face. God's word is just as clear to us then as it was them then what say you remember Jesus is orchestrating his trial to fulfill the will of his father the trains left the station it's on a single track to the cross Jesus has all he needs on board to accomplish the will of the father he is ready to leave them with no excuse for either accepting or rejecting him Yet knowing their wicked hearts and providing them the testimony which will lead one day soon to an earthly trial and eventual execution. As most of you know, what held Jesus on the cross now was the will of the Father, which he joyfully, willingly came to accomplish. But aren't we glad he did? If he didn't orchestrate the courtroom for the cross, then your sins and mine would still be unaccounted for unless we had new passports. Because he went, he died, he rose. And now, if we believe in him by faith, the Father sees the Son. Praise the Lord. So March 16th, our job is this. Some of you last year, I remember showing up to it. I think we had nine people show up to share about Church Under the Oaks or whatever we were doing back then. I would encourage most, if not all of you in this room, of the urgency to show up and be involved in outreach. There are so many people around you, in your communities, on your streets, around this neighborhood, that shouldn't be watching football, but should be hearing about Christ on Sunday mornings. So do something about it. Show up. Join a team, sign up, and join us. 
I'm not asking you. I'm imploring you for your good and for your godliness. Our mission field is both here and around the world. Zimbabwe, United Arab Emirates, Brazil. I mean, you go down the list. Before we're ready to spread the good news and invite our neighbors, let's dedicate ourselves to prayer. Do we pray for our missionaries? On the wall in that family center, which has been transformed beautifully, thank you, thank you, thank you. Some of those that were involved in the transformation aren't here, but they know who they are, and certainly God knows. Thank you for painting. Thank you for the beautiful coffee bar. Thank you for... There's going to be on that wall pictures of our missionaries, QR codes so you can scan them and hear updates and connect with our missionaries around the world. And the five families and the five people will be represented there. Pray for them. Hear about them. Connect with them. That's important. We are a hospital as we close. This is a hospital for sick and dying people. If we were in the Middle East right now and we were in the war-torn zone between and we were the only place that could shelter the lost and the people that were hurt and the invalids and the kids, we would be marshalling them in the doors because we have something that they need, right? We have something they need more than even that. For we will all die, some young, some older. And this world with infirmities and this world with death and this world with disease pales in comparison. Remember what I asked you two weeks ago. What's worse than 38 years of being an invalid, lame, eternally separated without God? That's what we face. A judgment to eternal punishment or an eternity with God. That's the question. What say you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. It's just impossible to read John 5 and start in verse 18 and go to verse 47 and not have a clarity that Jesus Christ is your eternally begotten son, that he is just and justifier, that he's the means for our salvation. And so, God, we want to be a people that hear and believe and then live out our faith. We pray for our missionaries this morning. We thank you for their service. Some have been serving for well over a decade. Some are in situations where they have to fear for their persecution. And that means how they communicate to us can't be as transparent. We think of countries such as India or even in the Middle East. But Lord, the persecution is coming here. It's just a matter of time. Because this world is not going to get better. There may be more saved, but there is an active enemy that wants people not to believe that Jesus is your son. So help us to pray for our global missionaries and let us be active in our local missions for we care enough about you and enough about our neighbors to be involved and make a difference. So God, 
compel us to pray in advance of that and pray often for that, for all power, all glory, and all honor are reserved to you and for you. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. Please stand and sing with us. Let me let me uh, let me turn to John chapter twenty and reaffirm verses thirty to thirty-one. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's our prayer for you this morning. So go in peace if this is true. And if not, may you be compelled and may the Lord wrestle you until this is true. Thank you for coming. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. And let me give you some housekeeping. So afterwards, um, there's going to be a missionary focus which will take place, Pam, in the family center. Is that correct?
So our encouragement is that you avail yourself, that you go into the Family Center, that you learn about our global missionaries. There's a beautiful display. I think Mary, and I know Linda was here, and many others have been working behind the scenes. Go spend time and look at the pictures, hear the stories, and sign up for the updates. Uh, there's a team that are there. Before you head out, I believe there's also coffee there, so it's a double purpose. 